a battle aimed at fighting. This was a religious ceremony aimed at worshiping. Now, to help us see this is, is going to require us to look at it in the context of the book. So look at the context surrounding chapter 6. If we go all the way back to chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua, there he leads the people of God across the Jordan River, which was the easternmost border of Canaan, the promised land, the land that the Lord had promised to Abraham to give to him and his descendants. Now, right before our passage, in Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, the Israelites celebrate the first Passover in the land of Canaan. And the Passover, of course, being that annual celebration commemorating the Exodus, remembering God's deliverance of their parents' generation from Egyptian slavery over 40 years, 40 years ago. Well, in striking similarity, the beginning of Joshua reads much like a retelling of the Exodus story. There's so many connections. Joshua is tapped as Moses' successor, and the Lord promises to be with Joshua just as he was with Moses and to work through Joshua as he worked with Moses. That's in chapter 1. And then they cross over the Jordan River by means of another miraculous parting of the waters, chapter 3. And then circumcision is reinforced as a sign of the covenant with Abraham. That's the beginning of chapter 5. And then the Passover, as we said, was just kept. And then at the end of Joshua 5, the Lord supernaturally appears to Joshua in a manner very similar to Moses in the burning bush. In both instances, the man of God is told to remove his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. So those similarities, they all are suggesting one thing, that the events in the book of Joshua amount to a second exodus. That once again, God is on the move to achieve a victory for his own people by his own grace and power. As much as God did all of the fighting against the Egyptians and received all the glory, God will also do all the fighting against the Canaanites and receive all the glory. So that's why instead of crafting battle plans, it seems like God is actually designing a religious ceremony, more focused on worshiping than on fighting. Now, let's recall the details of this supposed battle plan. Uh, there are soldiers positioned in the front and the rear of the column, but notice how they are pushed to the margins. And in the center is not the army. The focus is not on the army, but on the priests who are in the middle, and especially on the ark that they are carrying. That's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is that holy vessel that represented the very earthly presence of the Lord, of Yahweh God. Throughout their years in the wilderness, the Ark would always be in front, leading the people wherever they go, as if to say to the nations that they confront that this is not a people who fight for Yahweh. No, instead, this is Yahweh who fights on behalf of a people. That's the message sent by the ark, and the focus, the attention on the ark of God. Now Joshua is told to organize the army in this continuous column. 
uh, with, uh, with the soldiers before and after this contingency of priests who are carrying the ark. And there are seven priests in particular given a ram's horn, and they are to blow that as a trumpet. Together they are to encircle the city of Jericho once a day for six days. And we're told that no one is to speak a word during the entire march. The only sound was to be the sound of the trumpets blowing continuously. Then on the seventh day, the column is to encircle the city seven times. And after the last circuit, they are to make a long trumpet blast. And then that is when Joshua will call everyone to raise their voices in a mighty shout. So, friends, the image that we see here, the image that we're given, if you think about it, is, is not a pompous show of force. They're not taunting Jericho. There's no raucous, bloodthirsty celebrating going on by a bunch of, 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 of soldiers. And this feels more like a, a solemn ceremony. Everyone is as quiet as a mouse. The only sound is the sound of a trumpet, which, outside of warfare, would only have been used by Israel in ritual ceremonies like the Day of Atonement. So to, to an Israelite on that day, this sounds and this feels more like they're marching to a worship service than to a battle. And, and you might be wondering, why drag this thing out for, for seven days? Like, what's the significance of that? Why don't you just do this once and just let the walls fall down? Well, remember the context. They had just celebrated the Passover, and according to the Jewish calendar, the Passover commences what is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was a seven-day celebration where the Israelites rested from their normal labor, and they ate unleavened bread as an act of remembrance, remembering how God had delivered them from Egypt so decisively and so abruptly that, they, that their parents' generation didn't even have time to leaven their bread to take with them on their journey. And so this seven-day march around Jericho coincided with this seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And that was simply to reinforce the point that what's about to occur at Jericho is another exodus. This will be another instance of God fighting on behalf of his people, achieving a victory without their assistance, and thereby reserving all glory for himself. He will be worshipped as that covenant-keeping God who is mighty to save. That, my friends, is why I'm suggesting that the Battle of Jericho was really a religious ceremony focused on worshiping God as the one who is mighty to save. Joshua and his men are armed and they're ready for battle, but the instructions given to him require very little fighting and a whole lot more trusting. Trusting in God's word. Trusting in God's wisdom and, and in his mysterious ways. Because for Joshua, as a military commander, I'm sure this strategy of marching in circles and blowing trumpets makes no sense. How is this going to work? And not only does it raise a host of questions and doubts, this strategy is humiliating. We are men of war. We're trained to, to fight with the sword. We're, we're ready to engage the enemy in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But you just want us to walk around in a circle in absolute silence while the priest toots some horns, and then afterwards we just go back to our tents? The guards on the Jericho walls 
were probably laughing at them as they walked around the city. It's humiliating. And let's be honest, this really sounds too good to be true. We just wait and watch, and somehow we're just going to walk right into this heavily fortified city? Come on, that sounds too easy. Too good to be true. But friends, things begin to make more sense once we realize this wasn't supposed to be a battle plan. This was a religious ceremony. And like in a worship service, the goal here is to magnify the Lord, to praise him as the Lord of our salvation, to praise him in such a, and, and for, for things to happen in such a way so that there is no question that victory belongs to the Lord. Now, if we consider the Lord's response to Joshua's question there in chapter 5, verse 13, I think we, be, we get a better sense of what's going on here. So, so look there with me. There in chapter 5, verse 13, Joshua is confronted with a theophany. That's a visible manifestation of God, which he at first thinks is actually an unmarked soldier who could either be an Israelite or a Canaanite. And he's not quite sure. And so that's why he asks, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Look at verse 14. And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Are, are you for us or are you for our enemies? No. Uh, no, you're for us or no, you're for our enemies? No. Joshua, you don't understand. I am the Lord. I'm not a tribal God that, that you can just invoke in some kind of geopolitical struggle between opposing people groups. No, this is not a, a religious war between the holy, righteous Israelites against the wicked, pagan Canaanites. No, Joshua, I am the Lord over all peoples, over all tribes, all nations, and the reality is all of you are my adversaries because all of you have fallen short of my glory by your idolatrous, wicked practices. But because I am gracious, I will be for you and I will be for the Israelites in this coming battle. But not because of what you think, not because of your size, not because of your strength or spirituality. In fact, just like I told Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So in other words, the only reason I am for you is because I chose you. I chose to love you in spite of your smallness and weakness and propensity to stray from me. So when you've experienced victory, never forget that that victory does not reflect your strength or your worthiness. No, it reflects the Lord's grace and power. That's what's being communicated in that simple no. Church, I think the same applies to us. The victories that we experience in life are a reflection, not of us, but of God's grace and power working on our behalf. You know, the Apostle Paul does describe the Christian life as a good fight. But like the Battle of Jericho, it's a good fight of faith. It's a good fight to believe, to trust in God. 
It's a battle to trust in the Lord, in his word, in his wisdom, especially in his mysterious ways. Friends, do you trust God when his way is perplexing, when it doesn't make sense to you? Do you trust God when his way is humiliating, when it humbles you, it makes little of you and much of him? Do you trust God when his way sounds just too good to be true? If the way forward in the Christian life is, if, if it always made sense to you, if it depended on your courage and your dedication, if it came by the sweat of your brow, then God would never get the glory because you would readily claim it for yourself. In the same way, Joshua and the Israelites would have claimed the glory had victory not come in such a strange, peculiar fashion. So once we recognize that this battle is more of a religious ceremony aimed at glorifying the Lord and His salvation, then all of this marching in circles and, and blowing trumpets does make more sense. It, it does seem less strange. But at the same time, we are still confronted with this whole slaughtering of all the inhabitants of the city. So the Lord's instruction to devote the city and everyone in it to, to destruction still raises some serious ethical questions. And that leads us to our second observation, which I hope will shed some more light for us. The Battle of Jericho was a judicial sentence against the Canaanites. It was a judicial sentence. There's a particularity to these divine instructions. They were given specifically to Joshua and the Israelites at this particular point in redemptive history. They are time-specific. They are limited, meaning they do not set a precedent for how God's people should generally treat those outside of the faith. The key term in this text, the key term is that Hebrew word, harem, H-E-R-E-M, harem. When something is designated as harem, it is devoted to the Lord, set apart for utter destruction. Look at verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be harem, or in our English translation, devoted to the Lord for destruction. It's also found in verse 18 and verse 21. Now, I know other translations are going to use slightly different terms. It shall be under the ban, that's the NASB. It shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, New King James. It shall be set apart to the Lord for destruction, CSB. It shall be devoted to the Lord, that's the NIV. It shall be, listen, completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. That's the New Living Translation. All of those English translations are helping us to grasp this concept, to understand that harem is not really a military term. It's a religious term. You are not just destroying something. You are devoting it to whichever deity you are worshiping. And this is not a religious term unique to just the worship of Yahweh. It's not just the Israelites who would do this. Other ancient peoples worshiping other, other gods would devote things to their deities. Now, it could be material objects like gold or silver. It could be animals, like a sacrifice. It could even be other people, human sacrifices. That which is devoted would be either wholly consumed by fire or given to the priests that serve that deity for their use or consumption. 
Now, this act of devotion, if you were to give something over as harem, it is irrevocable. You can't take it back. The object cannot be redeemed once it has been designated as harem. Now, let's be clear. It was not for the Israelites to make a decision on what and what, and what is not harem. Only the Lord can make this designation. And that was very unique to the way that we see it taught in the scriptures. That it wasn't just some king deciding this. It was the Lord himself. So he did just that in regards to the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 to 18. That's Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18. There the Lord explains how the Israelites ought to treat the cities of the peoples uh, that are living in the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that the Lord has given over to the Israelites as an inheritance. He says there, Deuteronomy 20, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Okay, what are we to do with that? How are, to, how are we to understand these instructions coming from the Lord? Because Deuteronomy 20 verse 16 is, is a difficult text. But it's important to recognize that this designation of harem is a judicial sentence against the inhabitants of Canaan in particular. This was not a tactic that Israel adopted towards all of their enemies or all other foreign nations. In, in fact, in the very same Deuteronomy 20 passage, the Lord goes on, the Lord says earlier how cities outside of the promised land are to be treated, and they're to be treated much differently. So this act of devoting cities to complete destruction was not a general pattern of warfare for Israel. Now, before we go on further to explore this idea of it being a judicial sentence against the Canaanites, I think it helps to point out that this idea of devoting a city to utter destruction, as terrifying as that sounds, in reality never meant that literally every single man, woman, and child was slaughtered. Because what we find, whether you're in Deuteronomy 20 or in, in Joshua 6, what you find before you is hyperbolic language that would have been easily recognized by ancient readers as the language of conquest. This is how ancient people would have spoken in those days as they are recalling their battles. It was not meant to be read with a wooden literalism. It's like nowadays how we might say to one another how our favorite sports team totally annihilated the opposing team. You know, we just completely destroyed them. And, and, and you know exactly what we mean by that. It's a figure of speech. It's, it's, it's understandable. Well, in the same way, ancient readers understood this concept of harem, and they could easily recognize the hyperbolic, exaggerated speech often associated with the language of conquest. Let me just offer some biblical evidence as well. For example, the first mention of harem in Scripture is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2. That's where Moses tells Israel to devote the people in the land of Canaan to destruction, to treat them as harem. But then, in the very next verse, he warns them not to intermarry with all the Canaanites. Now, why would that be a concern? Why would he need to give that warning if, if, you know, they were to literally wipe off the face of the earth every single Canaanite? What that suggests for us is that 
To treat a people as harem, to devote a people to destruction, is not to be interpreted as a complete genocide of an entire people. Even in Joshua, even in the end of our book, in chapter 23, the last chapter in verse 7 and verse 12, Joshua gives final instructions after they've taken possession of the land and after they devoted all the inhabitants to destruction. There, even there, he refers to the nations that are still among you and how you are not to mix with them and not to intermarry with them, lest they lead you astray into idolatry. And that's the key issue. The concern is idolatry. The idea of wiping them out or devoting them to utter destruction is to remove the influences of Canaanite idolatry that they might not lead Israel to apostasy. That's actually the reason given in Deuteronomy chapter 20 in verse 18. So what Israel was engaged in was not genocide. This is not an ethnic cleansing, as some people have accused. The fact that there were even exceptions... There were Canaanites who were spared, people like Rahab and her household, or like the Gibeonites, an entire tribe later on in chapter 9. They were spared, and that demonstrated that there is no ethnic or racial animus behind this concept of harem. Back then, you wouldn't have been able to tell apart an Israelite from a Canaanite simply by looking at them. This is, it's not about racial distinctives. I mean, remember, Joshua couldn't even tell between an Israelite and a Canaanite simply by looking. That's why he had to ask the question, are are you with us or are you with our enemies? So there is no ethnic racial animus behind harem, but there is a sort of religious animus. Canaanites in general are to be devoted to destruction because they reject the Lord. They bow down to false gods. But a Canaanite individually, like Rahab, can be spared if she or he recognizes the greatness and the glory of Yahweh God. What this means, therefore, is that in these instructions to Joshua and the Israelites, the Lord, he's carrying out a divine justice against sinners who are rejecting his rightful rule over their lives. This is a judicial sentence. Back in Genesis Chapter 15, Genesis 15, verse 16, the Lord is talking to Abraham, and there he's telling Abraham, I am giving to you and to your kin this promised land, but your descendants are not going to take possession of it yet until this long hiatus where you will be sojourners in a foreign land for 400 years. Why that long? Why do you have to wait? Because the iniquity of the people in this land, it says, is not yet complete. In other words, they hadn't reached their limit yet. The Lord was willing to patiently suffer the sinful rebellion of the Canaanites for 400 years. He's long-suffering their rebellion. But there will come a time there will come a time when their accumulated iniquity will be so great that the Lord will no longer tolerate their presence in the promised land, and they will be dispossessed, they will be destroyed by his covenant people. Well, that was Genesis 15. This is Joshua 6. That time has come. The iniquity of the Canaanites is apparently complete. 
and a judicious, judicial sentence is to be carried out through Joshua and the Israelites. But friends, we, we must not lose sight of that long-suffering patience of the Lord. It's clear to us that his bent is to show merciful compassion towards a sinful people where he doesn't give people justice. He doesn't give us what we deserve. No, instead he gives us mercy. That seems to be the norm. That's what we've come to expect. And every so often, these long, patient periods of, of merciful compassion are interrupted by particular expressions of divine justice, like the Canaanites being devoted to destruction. And the reason that shocks us is because we have grown so accustomed to this long mercy from God that we take it for granted and we assume mercy is what everyone deserves. And that's why we can't understand these sporadic moments when we do see justice served when a judicial sentence is carried out by the Lord. This expression of justice against the inhabitants of Jericho is what stands out to us in this story, and it bothers us so much. But what usually goes unnoticed is all of the mercy that is found in this story. Think about how much time. Four centuries, 400 years, he gave the Canaanites time to repent. And on the final day, Rahab herself is going to stand up as a witness, as a testimony against her own people. She is proof positive that any Canaanite could have been spared, could have been redeemed. Knowledge of Yahweh was not withheld from them. Rahab, she, living in Jericho, already heard about Yahweh and all that he did for the Israelites and how he defeated Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So that information was readily available to people. The, the, the people in Jericho could not claim, uh, could not plead ignorance. And even all that marching around the city for six days meant six opportunities for them to open up those gates and to welcome the Lord and to welcome his people, just like Rahab did when she welcomed the spies. So there's so much mercy in this story, but we just tend to fixate on the justice, on that judicial sentence. I think we tend to do the same in our own lives, don't we? We've grown so accustomed to God's merciful compassion to the point that we come to expect it, perhaps even to demand it. So in those sporadic moments when mercy is withheld, when hardships or troubles or tragedies occur, when the harsher side of life and the harsher side of God becomes more apparent to us, we suddenly take notice and something just seems off Something seems wrong. But in those moments, we're just getting what we deserve. Those moments in life are sporadic displays of God's justice and sporadic reminders of how merciful and compassionate he is towards us the vast majority of the time. And that leads to our third and final observation. How the battle of Jericho was really a theological statement. In other words, this battle was intended to teach God's people something about God. It's something about ourselves in light of God. 
Now, that's not to suggest that the historical nature of these events is, in, is insignificant or that it should be called into question. No, we, we sh it is very important to affirm that these things actually did happen. But, friends, what's more important is that God's people come away understanding and applying the theological message behind the Battle of Jericho. And that brings us back to this concept of harem. At the heart of harem is the claim of the Lord's exclusive ownership. Anything designated as harem belongs solely to the Lord. So to violate that ownership by keeping some of these devoted things for yourself, that would be tantamount to robbing God. That would be a grave offense. And that's why Joshua warns in verse 18 to keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Of course, that foreshadows what's going to happen in the next chapter when the Israelites go up against the city of Ai. They're going to experience a humiliating defeat, and it's revealed to them that a man named Achan had actually kept some of those devoted things from the battle of Jericho and he kept it and stored up in his tent. That was a grave offense. And it was robbing God, taking what belonged to the Lord. And notice how that singular offense by one man affected the entire nation of Israel. So this concept of harem is a recognition of the Lord's claim to be sovereign over us, the sovereign creator and ruler of every single one of us. All things belong to him, including us, we have to recognize that our lives belong exclusively to the Lord. We are devoted things. In a sense, we have been designated as harem, devoted to the Lord, which makes our sinful rebellion all the worse. Our efforts to rule and run our own lives, our refusal to submit to God's lordship is, is like keeping some of those devoted things in our own tent. That's a grave offense. That is cosmic robbery. And God responds to our thievery with something far more terrifying than what we encounter here in the Battle of Jericho. If you find God in the Old Testament distasteful because he called for the destruction of an entire city and all its inhabitants, then what are you going to do with the God in the, Old, in, in the New Testament I, I think we have this mistaken impression that God somehow softens up when you get to the New Testament. But in actuality, his judicial sentences in the New Testament are elevated to a greater degree from a focus on just physical death to now spiritual death. And, and elevated in, in its scope from, from a focus on temporal punishment to now eternal punishment. I mean, we, we can't escape the theological message underlying this story. Just because we are New Testament people living under the New Covenant, we can't escape the theological message here. At the heart of this concept of harem is the grave warning that our lives have been devoted to utter, complete destruction. But at the heart of the Christian gospel is the good news that God set apart another leader and sent him not to carry out a judicial sentence against us like Joshua did for the Canaanites, not to put us to the sword. No, he sent this leader to fall on the sword. 
to devote himself to destruction, to be consumed himself by the fires of God's holy justice so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be spared like Rahab and her household. That, my friends, is what Jesus accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. So whenever you read about or talk about the battle of Jericho, don't gloss over the troubling parts. Don't, don't ignore the violent parts. No, instead, let those parts of the story remind you of the certain fate from which you have been spared, from which you have been redeemed, all because Jesus has triumphed over death by death and won the decisive battle, and now he leads you, he leads us into a new land, a new home, an eternal inheritance. And for those of you who are not yet Christians, who are not yet redeemed, who have not been spared yet, let those troubling parts of the story lead you to repentance to recognizing that you are devoted to utter destruction and that your only hope, our only hope, is to trust in Jesus, to look to him for salvation. I pray that you do that, even doing that today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this text, a familiar story that we hope, Lord, you have helped us to see in new light, especially in light of your holiness and our neediness for salvation through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.